Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jerry Me, and joined by my three trusty co-hosts. Up first, we have the one and only Mr. Mike Long. How you doing, Mike? Hey, hey. Doing all right. Jerry, how are you? Awesome. Doing well. Uh, we got Adam Shear in the house. How's it going, Adam? Rock and roll, Jerry. Rock and roll. <laughs> and last but not least, Mr. Brennan Flaherty. How are you doing? Great. How you guys doing? Awesome. Well, uh, happy holidays to all of you guys. When this episode comes out, it will probably be uh, right around uh, Christmas, getting ready for New Year's. Uh, so hope everyone is having a nice, safe, and happy holidays. I don't know if it can be safe or happy this year, but do, <laughs> it's going to be a rough one. Can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. There is some light at the end of the tunnel, though, guys. Uh, there has been some news. Uh, we have the vaccine developed. Uh, you know, probably by the time this episode comes out, uh, there'll be a bunch more information about it. But uh, vaccine is already rolling out. People are going to start taking it, I believe, later this month. Uh, so hopefully this, uh, episode doesn't fall on deaf ears that, uh, there's like some, you know, massive, uh, zombie outbreak, like in, uh, I am legend where they come out with a new vaccine and everyone turns into <laughs> zombies because of it. But assuming that doesn't happen, the vaccine's going swimmingly, swimmingly. And, uh, the end of COVID is, uh, within sight at the very least. Based on the polls think? that I saw, only only sixty percent of us will be turned into zombies. The other forty oh, percent I mean, aren't that... getting it. <laughs> but it's it started well, today. Been watching people all day get get uh, injected on TV. You know, it's oh, it's nice. uh, definitely the the marketing campaign has begun. Yep, I saw a news story uh, where people had lined it. It was like a parade, and it was just the initial shipments. Uh, leaving Pfizer, I think it was. Yep. And people were there just to watch the trucks pull out. Oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah, like it was. <laughs> Everyone's wow. so bored, they just Great. need something to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Maybe not zombies, but yeah. we've all become zombies. Yeah, yeah that's, that's for sure. That's a very fair point. Uh, so I wanted to bring that up because it kind of segues nicely into our first topic that we wanted to discuss today. And, uh, this episode, we're going to be kind of focusing on, uh, health insurance as a, uh, central topic of the episode. And, uh, that's really relevant with this new COVID vaccine, uh, because, you know, beyond the, who's going to get it first. The second question is, you know, how are we going to pay for it? Um, you know, some countries have announced that the country itself is going to be footing the bill. Uh, to my knowledge, the U.S. hasn't come out with any announcements, anything in regards to that yet. I don't know if you guys have heard differently, uh, but let's talk about kind of how this sort of, you know, medical procedure gets paid for under normal circumstances and what exceptions we might see considering the uh, extraordinary times we live in. Well, actually, um, th this was provided for uh, in uh, in the CARES Act. Um, you know, all kinds of testing was to be free of charge mm -hmm. to the patient. Um, but it's my understanding that in the CARES Act there are provisions for the vaccine, oh. and that it would be it would be covered uh, as well, and uh, private insurance would be required to cover it. Uh, and that goes back to plans that were 
uh, not grandfathered under the Affordable Care Act. That's um, that's interesting. I knew like the testing and all that was covered under CARES. I didn't know it was also extended out to an eventual vaccine because the CARES Act was was months ago at this point. But that's good. That at least there was some forethought there. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that was March, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so, well, I mean, we'll we'll probably see the where it really gets paid for is in our premiums. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's yeah, the, the, there's fun. always going to be money being made somewhere, right? So, so uh, they'll they'll get it. But there was a lot of public funding went into the research, not necessarily specifically with Pfizer, but there was a lot of public funds donated to help facilitate the the rapid nature in which this this vaccine was researched, created, and, and produced. So I, I think that there is some impetus for these companies to to allow people to get it for free. And and mm-hmm. one of the first things that Pfizer said when they came out saying we, we got it uh, was that we are we weren't part of operation warp speed they were that the very first press release that they put out indicated that they did not take public funds so yeah well also not just public funds but uh public effort uh i actually did this uh thing there was this mini game that this group put out of scientists where they gamified their data collection where they had a bunch of uh, samples and they needed individuals to identify certain patterns in the samples that computers couldn't identify and they basically gamified it and turned it into a little mini game where you could play this game for points and in in reality you're actually helping out the researchers by identifying patterns in the data sets they had for covid uh, so wow. yeah, it's, it was definitely a, a group effort, mm-hmm. not just with public funds, but also public effort as well. Yeah. Now there's more, more than one company has been working on a virus, uh, vaccine, right? Or will they continue to then bring it to market? Uh, yeah, a- it- absolutely. I mean, so we, we've heard from, so both Pfizer and Moderna are the, are the ones that I think alter DNA or RNA or one of the two. Uh, but then Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca, I believe, are producing just more traditional vaccines, um, and so the the amount of doses that are anticipated to be needed during uh, globally, I, I think, would, ex- would 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 dictate that that all four companies continue in earnest in, in their efforts. Yeah, I, th- okay. I think uh, supply is the real issue rather than demand. You know, it's not it, like, it, and obviously the Pfizer vaccine has just tremendous, you know chain of chain of of uh, control issues where everything's it's just going to be sub 90 degrees below zero fahrenheit to in order to be stored and you know there's going to be some waste there so i i don't think i don't know as though all the other um inoculations have the same have the same characteristics and that's just with the mrna type right brendan that's correct yeah as far as i know and i don't know i don't think modernus has to be kept as cold as Pfizer's. i think Pfizer was the outlier there but you know they're all they've all got 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 issues with with making the supply available it's good to know that uh the cares act is going to be covering the uh the cost of the vaccine at least it it looks like you know assuming those provisions still carry through uh but how does this uh kind of relate back to you know more traditional circumstances with health insurance and uh paying for uh you know say just like the flu vaccine things like that and how does that really relate also for our students who are studying for the cfp exam because i know the insurance section of the exam is a bit of a uh you know a difficult area especially around health insurance do we kind of want to talk about the process of that and what it means for you know clients not just for covid but for everyday life um yeah i think you were saying uh 
earlier that um, you read that vaccines, when there's been exposure uh, to something or would be under uh, Part B of Medicare. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how Medicare Part B is worded in that Part B will cover a vaccine after you've already been exposed to an at-risk situation. So, you know, the example they give is if you step on a rusty nail, they'll give you a tetanus shot and it'll cover that. And like if you're bitten by a uh, dog, it'll cover a rabies shot. But it doesn't seem like there's any coverage in Medicare Part B for preemptive vaccinations. Yeah, and I would guess that then would have to go to one's um, prescription drug coverage, whether, you know, whether they're on Medicare or just under private insurance. But um, certainly these can be covered in um, Part D of Medicare. And there's um, big changes in 2021 to this. Um, The donut hole in Medicare has um, Medicare Part D has closed officially at the uh, the end of the year. And uh, next year, um, there's different pay splits on this where for the individual person, um, they're not going to pay more than 25% uh, of the drug cost. There's a deductible as always. um, In in 2021, it's $445. And then um, the patient pays 25% and the plan, the drug plan will pay 75% until combined there's been expense of $4,130. Hmm. And then, then go ahead. You were going to ask a question. I was just going to say, well, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but just for our listeners who might not be as familiar, could you just kind of explain you know, what the donut hole is, like why it's called the donut hole and, and how it affects people? Yeah, previously, the, um, and now there's a term f- formerly known as the donut hole. So it's kind of like Prince. <laughs> you know? I was just going to say. Uh, <laughs> it's like the munchkins. Uh, known as donut holes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was interesting uh, and painful for uh, for elderly that you would start out the year with, um, you know, really good coverage, uh, not much out of pocket. And then once the expense level hit a certain threshold, uh, they were in the hole. They were in the donut hole and there was not coverage. Uh, So it became, you know, what what one month before might have been twenty five dollars became two hundred and twenty five dollars. Uh, out of pocket until another threshold uh, was hit, and then they would go into what what's known as the catastrophic uh, benefit period. Now, over the last few years, um, the donut hole has been very, very heavily subsidized by the manufacturers, um, so it wasn't as brutal as it was uh, earlier, mm-hmm. but still, still very expensive. And now in that period, after the initial coverage period, and there's still a period that is formerly known as the the donut hole. And under that period, the patient pays 25% and the plan pays 75% on generic drugs. For brand name drugs, the patient pays 25% the plan pays 5% and then the drug manufacturers pay 70%. And that's until um, the 
expense has been $5,183. And once that threshold is reached, it goes into the catastrophic uh, period. And under that, the patient pays 5% uh, coinsurance, the plan pays 15, and then Medicare itself uh, picks up 80% uh, in the catastrophic period. Mm. Now, we just threw a bunch of numbers at our listeners, and for our real-world practitioners, you have the benefit of being able to kind of look all this information up for your clients and, you know, giving them a nice, handy PDF or, you know, document in a meeting that, that outlines these numbers. For our test taker listeners, do you feel like this is stuff that they need to memorize, or would you say it's more just conceptually... Uh, you understand it, not necessarily have to memorize the the thresholds and numbers and, and whatnot. Yeah, very conceptually. Uh, I don't know that they've ever been tested on any kind of number uh, because it changes every year. And one of the questions on the exam has been as basic as which part of Medicare covers prescription right. drugs? <laughs> yep. D for drugs. Uh, yeah, right. D for drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but there, you know, it it there's going to be ample information for everybody uh, to go out and and look at plans and and one of the and and get, tell me if you think this this is cause and effect, but the number of Medicare Advantage plans available in 2021 went up by like 75 percent. It's now close to 5,000 different offerings. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is what's driving that other than the fact that for the first time, um, insulin uh, can be offered in a Part D plan and have a capped out a cost of $35 roughly for a month's treatment. Whereas before, with when it wasn't covered, um, some of these went as high as, you know, $300, $350 a, a month for insulin. Um, for a vial of, of insulin. So that's great news for uh, diabetics that are that are on uh, Part D because they may be having to pay $35 tops and the individual plans might even make it less than that. But other than insulin, I don't know what would drive in one year the addition of close to 2,000 additional plans that are out there can you think of uh, like do, anything do you know, else that would be driving uh, are there are there a lot of additional providers as well or is this just additional plans within the existing realm of providers i haven't studied it a lot but it looked to be uh, with what i looked at the same names yeah um you know aetna humana uh, blue cross blue shield um I, I didn't see a bunch of names i didn't recognize but um that could be it too. Maybe there's some new players. I mean, I feel it. It has to be. You said there is what five thousand different plans. I mean, there's definitely not five thousand providers. And, no. Uh, well, I guess that's an assumption I'm yeah. making. I mean, maybe there is. I'm not <laughs> too plugged into the healthcare worlds, but I, I feel it's got to just be diversification of plans with these providers. Yeah, and whether you want uh, insulin coverage in the plan or whether you don't. Um, I think it's just carving up the options. Just getting um, a little more customized. So I think you're right. right. It's, in terms of, of meeting your specific needs yeah. and what you anticipate your needs could be. But I think of our, you know, uh, elderly clients, and, and, and they're going to need some help with this. I think the pharmacies have become pretty good 
uh, at teaching it and also have you know resources to look at plans and select a plan. But uh, you know that's a lot of things to consider if you're a, a, an elderly person on Medicare trying to pick a plan. It, it's one of the things that I'm starting to see a lot more in practice. Um, there just more people asking, you know, what would you do and handing me all this information. Honestly, it's not something that's that's in, has not historically been in my wheelhouse, and um, uh, it it is. It's challenging. It's confusing. I can't imagine someone who's never had any exposure to it in the past trying to decipher and work their way through which is the best plan for them. Um, there are a lot of great resources out there. You know, uh, AARP has a lot of good information. Um, a lot of the pension plans uh, also provide uh, access to information. The health providers do, but it, it's it's hard. I mean, I, I, I just worked, went through it with my father last weekend. Um, and, you know, it's you're down to always like a handful. And then it's just, well, this one sounds the best to me. Um, and, and then they move on. But it's 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 one of the things that I am definitely seeing a lot more of in practice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we need to to be pretty familiar with the language. When Part D first uh, was developed, my uh, my firm enrolled thousands of people in, in Part D. And it was amazing how many had never even considered asking the doctor for a generic. And so they were paying these huge costs for original brands, that, some that weren't even on the formulary, um, and, and simply letting them know to talk to their doctor about generics. Like we got more phone calls from people saying, wow, I can't believe how much we're saving now on that. We never thought to ask them about generics for this. And Speaking now- of that, advisors have a fiduciary standard, but doctors will have a uh, responsibility to their clients. They don't have a fiduciary standard as far as uh, keeping costs low for their clients because a lot of these doctors are getting kickbacks from the drug companies to prescribe them the name brand drugs too. So it's not like it's in the doctor's best interest to just you know volunteer that information if the client doesn't specifically ask for it. Yeah, but I, I've also yeah. been hearing more that, that the prescription plans now opt for the generic where available. So there may yes. even be like a prescription for X and then all of a sudden the generic, like the three month supply of the generic shows up. And I, I've heard that more often re, uh, recently as well. Yeah, I think that's Absolutely. very true. I've seen that in some of, some of the medicine that I've had to take as well. It, it just seems to change more frequently. You know, I'll call up the, the, the pharmacist and they'll say, oh, okay, there was a change to your plan. We're, we're changing. It's the same deal, <laughs> same stuff. Going to do the same thing, but it's going to be generic. It's it's crazy to me though that that a, a pharmacist or a pharmacy tech can overrule a, a prescribing physician. Oh, you'd be surprised. One of my friends is a pharmacist, and the pharmacist is the one who actually has like final say as far as you know what they'll give. Because if the pharmacist is like, "Hey, your doctor prescribed you this, but it will kill you based on these other medicines that I just filled for you," so I'm not going to fill this. I'm yeah. going to get on the phone with your doctor and talk this out with them. <laughs> But, you know, when it comes to, well, you know, you've got this, I don't know, Lipitor, and instead of Lipitor, we're going to send you three months of the of the generic because it's just as good. It just seems crazy to me that that, that doesn't lie in the hands of the physician-patient uh, relationship. Yeah. Well, I mean, you also, you do have a, you know, patient relationship with your pharmacist. You know, your pharmacist has a doctorate, too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, so... For me, the real confusing aspect, even though there's many confusing aspects about Medicare and private insurance, is 
kind of the gray area where they start to overlap because for the vast majority of people, they're going to have Medicare and then they're also going to have private insurance. So what do you kind of rely on more? What do you focus on? Like, do you use Medicare first and then the insurance covers anything that's not covered by Medicare or what would you say for most clients, uh, their, their kind of course of action is in that regard? Well, my experience has been Medicare first once they're eligible for, uh, for that. I suppose there are people that could stay under group plans if they're still working and, and, and not have Medicare be the primary, but I haven't seen a lot of that myself. It's usually Medicare and then whatever else. And just about everybody has a Medigap policy as well. Yep. Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely seen it where people retire and one of their retirement benefits is continuation in the health plan, but they still need the the supplemental plans. Um, but Medicare is is the lion's share of people once they turn 65, you know, they're happy to be on Medicare. Yeah, and same here, that, that Medicare primarily. Um, unless you choose to, to defer your enrollment because you're still working and you're still covered by your plan. Right. As soon as retirement comes up, yeah. uh, it's it's Medicare. I always was very amused, if not irritated, <laughs> uh, in working with seniors, uh, how much credit they would give their supplement um, when really it was Medicare that was taking <laughs> such incredible care right. of them. If you look at, at the deductibles and co-pays, and that's all that the Medigap policy ever pays. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the elderly would say, oh, they're so good to me. They're they're so good to me, and I was like, "What does that mean?" <laughs> that's like, do they shovel your drive? I mean, what what does that mean? That's like, that's it's, like Johnny Johnny carries the groceries up ten flights of stairs, but Bob puts it in the refrigerator, and Bob gets all the credit. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the part they see. So that's the part that matters to them. <laughs> and this wasn't an occasional comment either. It was like ninety plus percent of the time they thought it was their Medigap. Uh, provider that was that was doing all the heavy lifting in this. Well, and the Medigap is what they're paying for, right? So maybe it's it's that behavioral where it's well, I paid for this and therefore I've made the right decision. This is taking good care of me. You know, thank That's God I did point. this. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, looping it back to our test takers uh, before we kind of move on to the next subject. What what would you say is kind of like the most important aspects of Medicare that you know? people sitting for the exam should really know you know what what would you say they should focus on adam what do you think um no go on custodial care for part a i think that's been a standalone question as far as uh, as far as yeah. long-term care is concerned uh, but also yep. knowing just how limited that window is for people that need long-term care under medicare i mean i've had people say well i've i've medicare why do i need long-term care insurance um and the truth is, it's such a, a small window for you to qualify uh, hospitalization into a skilled nursing facility. There's a lot of time-sensitive stuff that needs to happen. So I think that custodial care, no-go, is is one of the key points for Medicare Part A. Uh, what do you guys think about for B? I think just, you know, generally, what's it for? You know, it's for the non-hospital things. And to know that A is for the hospital and skilled nursing care, B is for the non-hospital expenses like uh, you know outpatient labs, tests, that kind of thing. Uh, just real general. Again, the numbers change every year on that. 
I will tack on the one numbers that they should work on memorizing is time frames. Yeah, elimination periods, things like that. Yeah, CFP yeah. board does like to test on time frames, like yep. how many days do you have in a skilled nursing facility? Um, you know, how many days do you have, uh, you know, before it kicks in? You know, all, all those time frames, those are the numbers that you should focus on. Not so much the dollar amounts, though sometimes those can be relevant, but for the most part, it's the time frames. Focus on the number of days. That's a good point. Yeah, particularly that skilled nursing one. Yeah. You know, 20 days with no copay, another 80 with a big copay. Now, in practice, folks think that that's a kind of a lifetime thing. It is not. It's per benefit period. And um, conceivably, one could have multiple benefit periods in the same year. Yep. If there's someone that's in and out of the hospital and then Medicare does not let them stay very long in the hospital at all. Right. They they quickly move them to a step down unit or to a skilled nursing facility just because of the cost, but that could be repeated multiple times throughout the year. All right, so up until now, we've been kind of focusing on the elderly and the retired and how they uh, cover their health expenses, but. You know, medical expenses is something that we have to face throughout our entire lives. So for those individuals who aren't uh, at Medicare age yet, uh, what are some ways that they can kind of pay for these medical expenses that don't necessarily get covered uh, by their their normal health insurance? Well, we should have a discussion then, I think, around FSA and um, my personal favorite, HSA. Um, yeah. A lot of folks are aware of the FSA because they, they might have them at their own uh, at their work. Do you guys participate in FSA? You know, so so I've been looking forward to this part of the conversation because I don't. I, 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 so <laughs> neither the FSA or the HSA um, is something that I participate in. I know that when I was I still have lingering um, benefits from when I was at Merrill Lynch because Bank of America contributed to an HSA for me, which I think carries with you regardless of whether or not you're employed. Um, and, and so it's just, it's just not something, you know, at 46 years old with a relatively healthy family that it, it's just not something that we, that we have done. So I'm, I'm curious about your opinion on this. Yeah. I, oh, sorry. Oh yeah, ahead. sure. Go first, Adam. Um, I inquired about our FSA this year. <laughs> I did not take the step to actually enroll. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I, I love, I love HSAs in, in what they, what they offer, um, there's a lot of great tax savings that are built in. I mean, they come at a price. The, the HSAs are attached to high deductible healthcare plans. So, right. which I'm in. So, so again, it's from a from a, a, a personal standpoint. It's it's on paper. It seems like it's a no brainer. And I don't know if it's just because of something I just keep putting off and putting off. It's but I, you know I never even think about it until you know we're forced to have a conversation about it. And. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to to come out of this convinced that I should be doing it for 2021. Well, let me. I think you should with HSA. Yeah, yes, I've, I've heard from a lot of. I've been hearing from a lot of advisors that the HSA is basically like after the Roth. The HSA is probably one of the most important plans that you should contribute to if you're eligible to contribute to. And uh, my personal experience. So when I was at Fidelity, Fidelity had an HSA, and Fidelity is very generous with their benefits. And Fidelity every year would put the maximum contribution into our HSAs, regardless if we put it a contribution in. 
So after I left uh, Fidelity, I got to take my HSA with me. And I've used my HSA to, you know, pay for prescriptions, pay for uh, like my glasses, the glasses I'm wearing right now, I paid for with my HSA and, you know, haven't spent a dime out of pocket because between my eye insurance and then the difference uh, the HSA covered, you know, it, it it's awesome. So considering I got it completely for free, I'm a pretty, pretty big proponent of the HSA. <laughs> yeah. And the, um, the um, list of expenses, qualifying medical expenses. Um, it's vast. I mean, it pretty, it covers a lot of ground. Um, IRS pub 502 for everyone that's interested in looking at the nitty gritty for the late reading. Yeah, for, for the, <laughs> exactly. Um, With- but yeah, it covers a lot of ground, uh, could, could certainly help. Uh, I, I think they're fantastic in, in the above the line deduction. I mean, the money goes in, you get the the second most powerful individual tax benefit in in the above the line deduction after credits, um, so it's just gonna gonna lower your adjusted gross income, uh, and it grows tax free. You can invest it and you can carry it forward. In fact, uh, people have used it as part of a long term care strategy, even uh, where it just gets funded and it gets carried over year over year, and it's just another pool of money that can be called upon later down the road. So. Lot of lot of good stuff with HSAs. I think what what I hear what I see from students in some of the the misunderstandings about just the mechanics of it, it's it starts with the HDHP with that high deductible plan. Right. Because right. the bands are you have your your high deductible, which needs to be a minimum amount that gets adjusted every year by the IRS. Uh, but then but there's that, it's not an unreasonable amount, no, right? So I don't I don't know not at no, all. I, I've seen I, well I think below. most people, yeah, most people would qualify if you just like choose one of the like lower insurance options. Like if your com- if your company offers you insurance options, then there's probably like one plan that doesn't get an HSA, and then a cheaper plan that does get an HSA. And if your company doesn't offer you health insurance options, you probably qualify for the HSA anyways. If your company's not giving you choices. <laughs> I think for a single that the high deductible is like the minimum deductible is fourteen hundred bucks. Yeah, um, and any more, I, I mean, it's rare to have a plan that has deductibles less than that. So, so many coverages have moved into the high deductible arena, but yet they're the company is not just flat out sponsoring high deductible. I'd like for our own to be redone like that. We're awfully close because uh, right because. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I my deductible I think is two thousand um, dollars, which is that beats the requirement. And the out of pocket was with, within like a fifty or a hundred dollars. We should just move should. <laughs> to to the high deductible plan because I would I would max fund an HSA every year now. So now, Mike, why do you say it's your favorite, or why do you love it so much? It's it's just more flexible, and you don't have to be so precise with the amount that goes in there um, because in an FSA, it's use it or lose it. Which ironically, um, FSA is the flexible spending, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Nate, as I've learned, names that are derived from bills are often the opposite of what they actually do. Yeah. Simple IRAs yeah, yeah. are anything but simple. You can, tell it's, you can tell it's a government program. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just like uh, alternative minimum tax. Right. There's nothing alternative about or it. Or minimum. And if you're yeah. subject to it, it's not minimum. Yeah. <laughs> 
but yeah, that uh, I think you know plans are allowed uh, to give a person like an extra two and a half months or five hundred dollars to carry over uh, in the FSA, but the entire amount uh, can stay in the HSA, and as Adam was saying, it can go on later to pay for long-term care or long-term care premiums, yep. which a lot of folks don't realize that either because the, the general understanding of long-term care, tax-qualified long-term care, is that the premium can be deductible. Well, that's true for very few seniors because it, it's an itemized deduction. It's an eligible medical expense for itemized deductions. So all that is deductible is the uh, excess of all eligible medical expenses in, in excess of 10% of AGI, or, is it, or maybe 7.5% still yet this year. Um, and, and so with the, but, with the use of HSA funds towards a long-term care policy premium impact the taxability of the benefits? No. Interesting. That's, is that how you understand it, Adam? I, I, I don't believe it does at all. No. It's kind it's, of the trifecta. Yeah. You have tax pre-tax or tax deductible funding. You have tax deferred growth in the account, and then you have tax-free uh, distributions. There's hardly anything out there that has that combination. What I love about the HSA is the level of control you have over the investments. Um, you know, my HSA is right in my Fidelity account, right next to my investment account, and right next to my IRA. And I can trade in the HSA the same way that I could trade in my trading account. Like, obviously, I'm not buying penny stocks or anything like that in my HSA. Uh, but, you know, if I want to have a more aggressive stance and I am using this as like a more long term, uh, like long term care insurance, trying to maximize its growth so that I'll have that money that maybe I don't even have to get long term care insurance. Uh, when I'm reaching that age, you know, I can take that stance with my HSA or if I want to be super conservative and just put it all in blue chip bonds, I can also do that and be very conservative with my investments in my HSA. Uh, it, it does give you a lot of control in that regard. Yeah. And and think about all these, these options yeah. we're, we're just spitballing here. I mean, for for someone that has a family, you know, your family is going to have medical expenses throughout the year. Right. Um, yep. You also know that that tax deductions are fantastic. You get you can just let's get as many above the line deductions together as possible in a given tax year, and uh, it, yeah. it checks those boxes. So there, you know, you see and you hear of people that are making they're maximizing the contribution, and it just it's a conduit that just it passes right through to to the medical expenses. Uh, but in the process, uh, it's it's tax free on the other side. Uh, it get, maybe it gets a little bit of earnings throughout the, that period, uh, but you benefit from the tax the tax uh, reduction up front. So, but it also offers people the, the the ability. I know I have a family member that just uses it as a savings account. It's just another place to save money and to invest and to grow. And he doesn't know what he's going to do with it. He just says, oh, "I just let it sit there, and, and I, I I fund it every year, takes the deduction, and lets it grow." So that could potentially be a pool down the line, or if he has it. If he has an unfortunate year on the medical front, I mean, that could be really beneficial as well. What about phase-outs on income in terms of contributing? No, no phase-outs. No. It's, I mean, it's, 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 plan, it's plan-driven. Uh, so, well, it's, it's based on that high-deductible plan. Like, that's the right. driver there. So you have your, your, uh, 
your high deductible and then you have your ceiling for your max out of pocket. Those are your thresholds. So, so Jeff Bezos, if he if he chooses the high deductible plan, Jeff Bezos can contribute to, a, to an, an HSA. He, Jeff Bezos probably does have an HSA, probably. <laughs> you know? And if he's 55 he's an alien, or, though, isn't he's not over, human. I mean, he could drop another thousand <laughs> yeah. in there, too. That's another perk, too. You get a... You get a little bonus. You go go 55 and older, you could drop another 1,000 in there. So like a catch-up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it, I mean, the worst-case scenario with an HSA is that the money was not needed, and it, it was just a really good tax-deferred uh, savings account. So when you say the money, um, so you're saying at the, at the contributor's death? It, it can, yeah, or just down the road, they just, they end it. Yep, you okay. can't fund it. Once you become eligible for Medicare, you can't fund it with new contributions. But do you have to pull out of it but at that what's point? what's in there, no. Yeah. Uh-uh, you can keep it and pay for all these things. And it, if you think about it, this is where um, if at some point in time, Medigap policies get out of hand cost-wise. I mean, right now, I think they're still pretty reasonable. reasonable. Yeah. But conceivably one could use their hsa to pay the deductibles and co-payments in medicare uh and and not have uh a medigap i would always advise medigap but you can use the money there we've talked about the use for long-term care you could even fund your hsa with a one-time uh transfer from an ira to uh to an hsa up to that year's uh, limit there's just it just can pay for so many things and um, so many people are eligible now. You know, we may even have people listening to this who themselves or their clients uh, are eligible, but they've never enrolled. There's a thing with HSA called the uh, last month rule. And, and what that means um, is if one is eligible for a high deductible plan um, or is covered by a high deductible plan by the last year, uh, last month of the year, they could fund their HSA with the full uh, amount for the year. It wouldn't be one twelfth of the amount. Hmm. It would be the full amount. Yep. And and that's a deduction. Um, and you can also make the contribution up until April 15th mm-hmm. of the following year, the same way as you can with IRAs. Yeah. I, I mean, I just wonder how many, how many are out there that could do this right yeah. now. They just have never. You know, it, it's funny because it, it's it's never something that's come up at tax time with my accountant, who you know who says, "Hey, maybe you should take advantage of, of contributing here and taking that right off because it would reduce your taxable income." Like it's just not something that comes up. I I think it's almost like even more powerful than the Roth. Looking over these details because you get to put it in tax free and then withdraw it tax free. So it's like it's like you're putting it in as a traditional IRA and then withdrawing it as a Roth IRA with all the uh, the earnings as well being tax free. Yeah, I I don't know. I think honestly, the only reason why more people don't recommend it is they're just not as familiar with it. It's not. It's not the household name like the Roth IRA is. And it's been around for a long time. I mean, it's just it's it's funny that it's just and again, shame on me. It's just not something that that uh, I focused a lot of attention on. Um. It's not something I get asked a lot about either. You know, it's just sure. it's just not a common thing. If, if um, yeah, there's also rollover potential as well. I mean, that's another benefit too. You have the HSA, right? Because yeah, I know I still have the um, I, I still have the the benefits that that 
were given to me at, at Bank of America. Um, I don't know where they are, how to get them, but I know they're out there. I get a statement once a year, and then I say, like, oh, I should do something with this, and then, whoops. Well, and that's the thing is, like, you can set them up completely independent of your work. You know, the requirements to contribute to the HSA have to do with your work's insurance plan. But as far as opening an HSA, even if your company doesn't offer an HSA as part of the plan, you can just go to Fidelity or Schwab or any of these other brokerage firms and just open an HSA as a standalone account. And it's the same way as like with your IRA and Roth IRA. Yes, you have to make sure you meet the requirements and that's on you to figure that out. But as long as you meet those requirements, you can make those contributions as as much as you want. Well, not uh, contribution-wise, but you know what I mean as far as <laughs> if you want to make the contribution, you can make the contribution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the unusual things? So so I think it was Adam, you were saying, well, you'd be surprised at what, what, what you can actually pay for with this. So yeah, let's say, knock me over with something that's interesting. <laughs> let's, say, uh, let's say there's this weird herbal supplement that you, you think, all right, it's, that's not going to be covered. Well, I, you know, it's basically doctor's prescription. You know, it, it's you can have herbal supplements that uh, that are going to help your condition. Um, yeah. One that I learned about recently uh, was if your diet has to change um, in terms of like, let's say you're on one type of diet, you have some sort of gastrointestinal thing and your diet has to change drastically. Um, I speak from personal experience here. I won't share anything more than that. <laughs> um, the difference between your old diet on average, like the food cost you have, and your new required costs could be something that could be covered there. I mean... Um, so that gap? It's, yeah, yeah. It's a qualifying medical expense. Um, huh. Let me think of some other oddball ones. What, what about like a treadmill? You know, if uh, I wanted to buy a treadmill to, to exercise on a it, deal, now the gyms ha- are closed. I don't think so. It has to be prescribed, <laughs> prescribed by it has to be prescribed by a doctor. So that's the thing is like uh, the interesting one that I always thought was funny was your massages yes. can get covered by your HSA if it's prescribed by a doctor. Like yeah. if part of like physical therapy is you get massages twice a week. Those can be covered by your HSA. Yeah, acupuncture uh, as well. Same, I think acupuncture yeah, is on that list. Acupuncture. Uh, acupuncture, chiropractor, all of that stuff. As long as you know your doctor signs off on it, uh, it can be paid for. It. Yeah, I think the. Um... Hey, what about dental? What about dental? That's a good question. I don't actually know about dental. I believe that it could, Mike. I believe um, that dental costs. I are think, covered. yeah, I think both dental and, and vision. vision, and this is important to the seniors. Oh, actually, vision definitely, because I paid for my glasses yeah. with my HSA. So vision <laughs> definitely you can, unless I'm going to get a really angry letter from the IRS this year. <laughs> Maybe that's that case we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yep. Sorry, Brendan, I beat you to it. <laughs> yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll get a, you'll get a uh, what is the publication, copy of publication 502, <laughs> is that what it is, Sharon? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I believe one of your colleagues yeah, mentioned I, this, Jerry. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we might need to take a closer look. <laughs> well, I yeah, I mean the dental is huge for seniors though cuz yeah. Medicare does not do anything for dental. And and so, you know, here it could all be on a you know, tax-free basis. Um vision, long-term care, um disability I think is in there. Um Again, no impact on the taxation of benefits. No, no, this is that trifecta stuff. Yep. So, um, 
yeah, I don't know how aggressively these are marketed. I don't think very, but maybe they it, ought to It's be. just not, I mean, from, again, maybe I'm unique, but but from a practice standpoint, I, I, I have maybe had three of these conversations in 15 years. I think it's definitely a conversation advisors should be having with their, yeah. their clients more often just because of how powerful these plans are. It's like, it's limited in the fact that it can only be used for medical expenses, but... People have a lot of medical expenses, especially these days. So it's, uh, and what is it? The number one cause of bankruptcy in America is due to medical expenses. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, this is just another way to kind of help in that regard. So, yeah, if you're not already talking to your clients about HSAs, you might want to look into that. And then let's let's loop it back for our test takers. What would you guys say is the most important uh, concepts to know about HSAs for the actual exam? Well, certainly the three tax benefits. Um, I think, uh, I think there's a question out there about that third or that 12th month rule. Uh, what else, Adam? Um, yeah, I would say just knowing that it's, it's, it's on your list of above, above the line deductions for sure. Above the line. Yep. So just make sure that you have your awareness when, you know, for AGI, you, you see the HSA there, you know, that, that, that qualifies. Um, I, I would even say just, just knowing that, that the medical expenses have to be qualified, uh, you know, it's, it's qualifying medical expenses on the other side of it that, yeah. and like you mentioned, Jerry, doctors, doctor prescribed makes all the difference here. I'd even say, just right. be aware of the fact that there's that little catch up amount as well. And, um, yeah, yeah. $1,000 catch up. Also penalties. I, I would just have some awareness about the penalties because if you, if you overfund it, there's an X, there's penalty on the excess. Um, of 8%. 8%. Yeah, 8% on the excess. Ex excess contribution. Yeah. yeah. What about the penalty if it's a, not a qualified medical expense? Does that work similarly to IRAs with some exceptions? Or I, I don't know the answer to that. 529s. It's a 20% penalty. I don't know if there are... Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. 20% penalty as well as well as income tax. Yes. You then it then triggers income tax. I don't think there's an exception for like first time home purchase or okay. anything like that. I would I'd have to double check that. But I don't believe they don't want people pulling out of their HSAs to buy houses. <laughs> um, and then before I forget, I would also just say the most important thing I would say for the test is the requirement to open one. And that's the high deductible uh, point. Uh, yeah. insurance plan, because I, I had that question on my exam. It was as simple as uh, what do you need in order to open an HSA? And it was like D high deductible plan. Yeah. Like, Oh, right there. That's the answer. And provided on your formula sheet as well. That's those, those limits are on that. The tax tables. Yeah. Tables. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, look at the tax tables. So many students, uh, that's a good point, Adam, because I've had so many students waste so much time memorizing facts and figures that are on the yep. tax tables. Absolutely. Before you memorize anything, check the tax table and make sure it's not on there first. Yeah, it's important to know how to interpret them, not necessarily to memorize the facts and figures. All right, guys, for our final topic of the episode, we're going to loop in the question of the episode uh, because I feel this last topic makes the most sense when we uh, pair it with some examples, and that is stop loss insurance. Uh, this is kind of a topic that a lot of students have some difficulty with, so you guys want to dive into this question and see if we can shed some light Go on for it for it. our students? Let's do it. Sure. All right. 
Todd has an unlimited major medical policy with a $350 deductible and 80-20% coinsurance to a $5,000 stop loss. Todd had a claim of $10,000. How much must Todd pay out of pocket? Lots of stuff thrown at you guys. I'm going to repeat it for our listeners. Uh, the, the key points here. Todd has unlimited major medical, $350 deductible, 80-20 coinsurance, $5,000 stop loss, and a claim of $10,000. How much does he pay out of pocket? So first of all, what are what are the kind of the key facts that you guys zero in on when you see a question like this? Well, certainly deductible, right? Right. Yeah. Always important to deductible. Absolutely. Coinsurance, because that's, that's step two. So what's that split yep. look like? And then the stop loss, which for some reason gives a lot of people a lot of trouble. But I think once we kind of explain it a bit, they'll they'll realize it's it's not that scary. Uh, so what's the first thing we got to do to solve a question like this? I would split it and put the insured on one side and the employer on the other, and then just go go through numbers, drop them in. Yep. And that split is the 80-20 split, right? Uh, and it doesn't explicitly spell this out, but uh, the insurance covers 80% and Todd covers 20%. That's yeah. kind of the first distinction right there. I've seen some people make that mistake where they think, you know, <laughs> insurance covers 20 and they cover 80. And that's right. not, and that's that's not very great insurance. Deductible. So we take the deductible out first on the insured side and then we go to coinsurance. Yep. So first and foremost, uh, Todd is going to pay $350 out of pocket before anything happens. Yep. Right. So $350 is, is line item one for Todd. And now Todd is going to pay... 20% as well, right? Now we have then $9,650 remaining to be paid. And now we're moving to coinsurance. And our coinsurance is uh, after the deductible is paid, it's 20% paid by the insured, 80% paid by the insurance company up to the stop loss limit of $5,000. So of that remaining 9650 the next $5,000 of eligible expenses will be paid 20%, $1,000 by the insured, and 80%, $4,000 by the insurance company. And then we're out of coinsurance, and the rest of the claim, the, the remaining amount, is paid 100% by the insurance company. Yeah, exactly. And I think... It's easier to do these types of questions from the insured's point of view, because if you are the insured and you're trying to figure out how much the insured pays out of pocket, the total claim doesn't actually matter to you. The only thing you care about is your deductible, because you pay that first, and then your coinsurance percentages based on the stop loss, because you're only going to pay your percent up to the stop loss amount, anything beyond the stop loss amount is 100% paid for by the insurance company. And this is another uh, one of those read carefully on the exam and see who indeed are they asking about the, the amount payable, uh, the insured or the insurance company. Yes. Um, and that would, and both the answers would be there as, as choices. Um, 
but yeah, you, you just have to be very careful with where this gets where this gets really confusing is if there's a policy that has, you know, it's a per person deductible, but it puts a family cap on it. Hmm. Um, like, you know, there's a family of five and three of them are in an accident. <laughs> Yep. And, uh, it, you know, so here's the expenses. So we are all five of them are in an accident. Three deductibles would be out of pocket, but everybody would have their own co-insurance. But hopefully that won't be the question uh, on, <laughs> yeah. on the exam. That's tough to track. Yeah. So for the process for this, guys, keep in mind uh, deductible first. And then if you're the insured, what you really focus on is the stop loss rather than the total claim. And then if you're doing it from the insurance company, you focus on the claim amount rather than not necessarily just the stop loss amount. Hopefully that uh, clears it up for you guys. I know this is a uh, very data heavy question, so we're definitely going to uh, post this question up on the Biff Bites website so you guys can really sink your teeth into it and, you know, look at all the information uh, in front of you. Uh, and hopefully that'll kind of clear up the stop loss because I do get a lot of questions from students on stop loss insurance. Yeah, it's one of the, I would probably put it in the top 20 every year, uh, number of questions that we get on a, on a singular subject. Yep. Awesome. Well, great. That was a fun little insurance episode to round out. The That's year. an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone loves insurance yeah. when they need it, though. I think everyone, uh, your uh, New Year's resolutions coming up should be uh, take another look at your insurance plans. Make sure, you know, you kind of understand exactly what you got and check to see if you qualify for an HSA. Because if you if you can do an HSA, you might definitely want to look into opening one of those. Awesome stuff. Well, I had a blast today, guys. I uh, hope to see you all next month in the new year. Be well, everybody. Hang in there. Yeah, hopefully 2021 is just as good as 2020. Oh, man. Yeah. The, the bar is low. Yeah. The bar is low. <laughs> the bar is closed. <laughs> what what yeah. was it you said that <laughs> one time, um, Brendan, that... The, the, about consumption of alcohol uh, with your hands? Uh, yeah, the 2020 is the year that my hands consume more alcohol than my mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's saying something. That is. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Awesome. Well, take it easy, everyone. All right. Hope you have a good one. All right. Happy holidays, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.